to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks, Jen. We're going to look today at uh, some things that are beyond our comprehension. We're going to see things that we don't fully understand, uh, but we can still see them, if that makes sense. And um, what Paul shows us here in this passage that Jen's just read for us is something he wants us to see, not just to know about it in general, but to have it in the very forefront of our eyes, is it before our faces at all times. Sometimes it's easy for us to lose focus on it. Some of us have never really actually seen it at all. But one of the things the Bible says that we can pray is that we can ask God for eyes to see. And so I want to encourage you to join with me now in, in doing that. Uh, whether you believe in Jesus or not, um, I want to ask you, let's, let's just ask God, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the great things we've just heard? to really believe and be confident in and have our lives shaped by these amazing things. And if our comprehension of them increases by just the smallest of percentages this morning, the wonder that will have been increased is incredible. So I pray, Holy Spirit, be at work in us that we would be able to do that. Amen. So one of the ways in which we can understand uh, this passage is uh, to look at the shape of the story that Paul tells us here. If you think about the locations that Paul mentions Jesus being in, that can help you have a sense of the flow of this story, the journey uh, that Jesus goes on. And that's what Paul is trying to uh, take our imaginations on, that same journey, that same shape, as it were. It starts with Jesus in the highest place. Paul says that he was in the form of God and that he had equality with God. That means he's God. God is too perfect for someone to be a bit like him. Or someone to be like kind of 50-50, he's a bit like God, but not quite. You're either like God or you aren't. And so when the Bible says Jesus is in the form of God and has equality with God, it's saying he is God. And so he's with God in the heavens, in the, uh, the place of authority, the highest heights. That's who he is. But then what happens is this extraordinary choice that is actually completely typical for Jesus where he chooses to use his great power for our good. Because he is in heaven, he is glorious, he is perfect, he has everything he needs and everything he wants, he has no, there's no lack in Jesus. But on the earth, there are all these people like me and you who have substantial problems, are a complete mess. We have turned away from God, we've rebelled against him. That means we're separated from him, that means that he who is the giver of life and of every good thing is apart from us, and we are apart from him. And so we're in this disastrous situation. And how can it be resolved? Well, Jesus knows, and so Jesus comes down. And Paul charts what Jesus does, taking us lower and lower and lower. 
Firstly, God doesn't come down in his glory. God comes down by taking on human flesh. The creator becomes a creature. You think, well, that's got to be a downgrade. That wasn't as high as you were before. But not just a creature, not just a human being. He could have been like the most powerful person on earth or the smartest or the, you know, gathered crowds to him and all these kind of things. But Paul says, no, he took the form of a slave. Now, your Bible probably has the word servant because we're awkward about the word slave. But the word is slave. It's someone who has no privileges and no rights. That's the kind of person Jesus came to be. So he doesn't just come from heaven to earth to be a human like us, which is obviously lower, but he's the lowest kind of human. He's someone who's got no rights. And then he goes even lower still. He submits to death. But he's the giver of life. Like He's the one who gives all life, and now he is submitting to death. You only die because you sin, and Jesus never sinned. So he, the height of his perfection and then the, the wrongness of death. Paul's taking us lower still. And then not just any kind of death, but the lowest kind. Death on a cross. Verse 8, whether you're a Christian or not, it feels familiar to you. Death on a cross, yes, I know that. And the Philippians knew it as well. But they would have shuddered even to hear the word cross read out. In Roman society, crucifixion, because they actually knew it, they saw it, they sometimes walked past it, was so horrific and so horrifying that you just didn't talk about it in polite society. If you were a, uh, a citizen of the Roman Empire, i.e. you were kind of in the privileged group, you knew you wouldn't be crucified. Even if you did something wrong, they would kill you, but they wouldn't do that to you because that was just the worst of the worst of the worst. And that, Paul says, is what Jesus takes on. If we're drawing the shape of this story, if we're watching its trajectory, it seems that it's just been going down and down and down and down. We're meant to see that Jesus isn't one of us who did some good things and we can learn from him, but is God who has come down into our situation to rescue us. Paul then moves on. He starts with telling us the things that Jesus has done, and then he moves on to the things that God has done in response to Jesus. And the angle of our drawing changes. The angle of the story, the trajectory changes. Because from the grave... Jesus was lifted up to new life. And he comes to his disciples and it just blows their mind. They're not expecting it. Uh, they can barely believe it at first. And so he has to keep talking to them and showing them and eating breakfast with them and doing all these sorts of things. And he's shown them he really is alive. And he's not just alive as in he got better from being dead, but it's a new life. It's a radical resurrection life. And they see that and they're amazed and they worship him. And then he returns to heaven. And obviously in our head, we just, that's how we think of heaven, isn't it? It's up there. And that's, what, that's where he goes. And Paul says, he goes there and he was highly exalted. Verse 9, it's one word in the Greek. It takes the word exalted and then adds hyper to the front of it, which means really, really. So it's like, you couldn't be higher than being exalted unless I put another word in front of it. That means you're really, really exalted. There's nowhere higher to go, Paul says, than where Jesus is now. And that sense of supremacy is reinforced by the next thing Paul says. He's given the name that is above every name. Verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so we've gone from here, down to here, down, right back up now to there. The use of the word Lord is massive, by the way, for two reasons. Firstly, because at the time Paul wrote this letter, most people said that Caesar was Lord. And the reason they did that was because Caesar killed you if you didn't. This wasn't just a matter of opinion, this was imperial policy. Everyone has to say in their own empire, Caesar is Lord. And then Paul just writes in this letter, no, Jesus is Lord. It's a shocking statement that the most powerful force on the earth has to submit, or is inferior to the one who was crucified on a cross. Jesus' claim of allegiance trumps all others. We have to feel that that's radical but normal for Christian experience. Because we live in Britain that has this sense of, oh, we were a Christian country, Christians still kind of expect to fit in with what's going on. They're kind of surprised when they watch things on the TV. They think, that doesn't sound right. How strange. Paul says it's not strange at all. There are two competing claims going on. Caesar is saying, I am Lord, and Jesus is saying, I am Lord. And we're to feel that. If you're a Christian, you're to feel that. If you're not a Christian here today, you're thinking, yeah, these guys really are quite different to me. And what Jesus puts before you is the challenge. Who will you submit to? Who will be your Lord? Someone will be. So it's a pretty big deal to have put Caesar in his place. But that's not the biggest thing that Paul's saying when he calls Jesus Lord at this point. Because the title here was the same word uh, that was used by Greek-speaking Jews to translate the name of God himself, Yahweh, into Greek. That's why when you look in the Old Testament in English translation, uh, it often says Lord in capital letters. And what the word actually there in the Hebrew was Yahweh, the name of God. And they translated it into this Greek word Kyrios, which means Lord. And then here, Paul says, Jesus is Lord. You need to hear that, because it's not just, that's another title, oh, that's nice, he's in charge, something like that. It's saying much more than that. Paul isn't just saying that Jesus is great, but that he is God. And if there's any lingering doubts about Paul's point of view, have a listen to Isaiah 45 from the Old Testament. And God is announcing in this passage what he is going to do. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And Paul says exactly the same thing about Jesus. He says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what God says about himself in Isaiah 45... Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. And this is the end of the story, as Paul tells us in this chapter. Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. Whether they like it or not, they will see him as he is because he is coming back to complete what he has achieved, the reclaiming and restoration of all things for God. The first time Jesus came to the earth, he was hidden. People weren't sure if it was him or not. He made it very plain, the second time he comes, there'll be no ambivalence, there'll be no uncertainty, everyone will see. So this story's shape 
goes from the highest height to the deepest depth, and then highly exalted again, the name above all names. It's, it's, it's like it's U-shaped. And Jesus invites you to become part of that story for however deep in the depths you are, however awful your life may seem, whatever kind of mess you have made of it, the story of Jesus and the story that he invites you to come into says even when you're at your lowest, you can be brought up by him. So how do we respond to this? I've got two words to get us going with, with humility and with hope. Firstly, humility. Our passage starts, verse 5. Have this mind, which is Christ's mindset, have this mind among you, among yourselves. We're being told, think like Jesus. Don't see your privileges and your rights and the things that you've got as things that have been given to you for you. They've been given to you for others. Make yourself lower so that others are blessed. That is hard. I don't know very many people who do that automatically. I mean, we know our rights, don't we? And we know when we are right. And therefore, surely, if we are right, our way should go. And we know what it's like to have the right of way. And at that moment, surely we should do what we should do. And and it's right for us. We can assert ourselves when we're right, surely. Jesus never did. Jesus doesn't take his glory and use it for himself. He doesn't take what is his and increase his own fame. He uses it for others, and Paul says, be like that. And we say, how? And Paul says, just a couple of lines later, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is willing and able to teach you how to be humble. And sometimes he does that whether we ask him to or not. But when we do ask him, he's always very quick to answer. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, works in us, the Bible says, and changes us, makes us more like Jesus. This is one of the key ways. Humility is also about seeing who the story is about. See, it may be you-shaped, but it's not you-shaped, if you know what I mean. This is God's story. We are just fitting in. Meaning in life does not come from deciding who you are, but discovering who he is and getting in line with that. We are told the exact opposite of this every day. All the time. Find out who you are, then your life will have meaning. And the Bible says, no. And in fact, when we look around, we say, no, it doesn't work because no one's found it. Unless... When we look into God and we see this is who you are, I need to shape myself around you. We need to tell ourselves this truth every day if we're going to think differently because we're going to be told the other thing as well. It helps to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we're to respond with humility. We're also to respond with hope because as Nathaniel said earlier, This is the best news. This story is great news, that God's story is U-shaped and he invites us into it. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's it's been a fairly dark and stormy start to the year. Um, I mean, the weather's bad. It's got so bad we're now naming it. 
and famous people have died and things go on and we just, it's, it's just that time of year where you're like, when are things going to get any brighter? So like this morning, just like, oh, thank goodness. But, you know, if you want to read the news, that will then turn away all that brightness again, won't it? Because there's illness and there's sadness and there's injustice and there are misbehaving politicians and misbehaving bosses and misbehaving kids and there are rugby results and Valentine's Day results and essay and exam results. And there are cars that go wrong and houses that go wrong and bodies that go wrong. And you could tell me a long list for yourself of all those things for you that have either happened or are happening or you even suspect might happen. And they are real, but they are not the end of the story. They're the kind of things that happen in the middle of a U-shape that happen at the bottom. For Paul, when he was writing Philippians, it was being in prison. So if you don't know, he wrote this letter, he was under house arrest. It happened to him several times before, there's a good chance he was going to die. And he writes this letter. You think, how does, he, how does he keep going? How does he persevere? How does he sound enthusiastic here? How does he write this letter which has blessed millions of people over hundreds of years? How does he do it? Is he just a chipper kind of guy? No, it's because he's seen what's going to happen. It's because he knows where the story is going. And because he knows that, he has a real hope. It means he can live for God whatever the circumstances, because whatever happens right now, he knows what will happen later. And this just dominates his thinking. It's all the way through uh, Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I mean, let's see what happens. Hope for the best, and then goodness only knows. He doesn't say that. He says, I know what's going to happen. Then he says, he's thinking about, is he going to live or die? Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is now to live is Christ? Because to die will be gain. It's part of the same story. And then we've had the passage we read today, which is all about the glory that is to come. That's right in the middle of the letter. And then chapter 3, Paul says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And then he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, that shape again, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This hope is always true. Whatever your current circumstances, this is always the case of what is to come. And when we have this picture of the coming future in our minds, we have hope for today. It's not that whatever's going on right now, you just kind of ignore it. You're like, oh, it doesn't really matter. No, no, the things that are bad and wrong, we want them to be fixed. We want them to be improved. Of course we do. And it's not that we don't feel them. But it's that they don't have the final word because they literally are not the final word. They are just what's happening right now. But something better is guaranteed to come along. And like I said, Paul, in that hope, he writes Philippians He writes several other of the most wonderful pieces of writing in all of history that have blessed millions of people because he didn't give up hope, because God worked that in him. Who knows what you will do when you stay hopeful, even when it's hard?
Maybe you've never believed this before. Maybe this is new information uh, to you. You've been writing your own story. Well, today is the day to trust the real one. The message of Jesus is about humility and hope. You have to be humbled. You have to admit that you have done wrong and that he is Lord. And for many of you, that will immediately, you'll be like, no, I haven't, no, I haven't. Well, the story is, yes, you have. And we can talk about that some more, but just the simple part of it is that you've done wrong and Jesus is Lord. And so you have to bow the knee to him and give everything you have to him and everything you are to him. And in return, he gives you this eternal hope. And there'll be a chance to ask someone about that and to help you with that when we end in a few minutes. But before we do that, we're going to do something else. I've moved quite quickly through some of the greatest truths that there are in one of the most amazing passages of the Bible. And I've done that because I I want to finish with something that's a bit different. I, I, I don't want just to have explained to you what there is in there and what it means. I I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. And there are different ways in which that can happen. Paul's imagination goes into full throttle at this point. Some people think that the the passage we read today was a hymn. Um, I'm, you know, reading a bunch of experts. I don't think it was. I think just Paul was very excited and it just stirred him and it got his imagination flying about the greatness and the glory And that is an appropriate way to respond to this. And so I'm going to try and help you do that by sharing what I've done in response to this uh, this week. Elsewhere, in this most precious book, we're told that angels long to look into the things that God has done, the saving hope that Jesus won. Yet he did give them ringside seats to witness this most gracious feat. Since they were made, they'd sung along, as they'd sung aloud. But please, forget the cliched cloud and chubby child with a harp. These are the mighty, and their swords are sharp. His messengers, when they draw near, brave men on earth would shake with fear. Yet all their songs are for their king, whose throne they circle with ten thousand rings of countless creatures giving praise to their great Lord, ancient of days. He who is one and also three, total in his unity, always in themselves delighting, ever joyful, never striving, source of all that's good and fair, power, justice, beauty, care. From this pulsing love went waves of words creating galaxies, matter gathered into stars, then Saturn, Jupiter and Mars and Earth, a tiny speck of planet in a faint sun's tugging orbit, green of land and blue of sea, a perfect place for harmony. All this he spoke and formed and filled, out of God's mind creation spilled, his gathered forces cheered again as he unveiled his image, men. The messengers looked on with awe and saw how perfect people were to show God's nature to the rest, as ever he had planned it best. The birds and beasts and fields and wood, the man and woman, it was good. But then came shadow. Earth was shaken as the forbidden fruit was taken. All the bonds of trust were broken. Earth was banished far from heaven. 
the messengers saw God's fierce zeal and wondered what could ever heal the evil writhing in all hearts. They heard the sun say, let us start. A plan began they had conceived. Unlikely children, parted seas, blood and words of hope and love, angelic visits from above. Clues came of what would happen next, but when it did, no one had guessed that he would go all the way down, that he would set aside his crown. No mighty show of divine glory, but a totally new story. He told his baffled angel host, I must be able to get close. There is no other way for them. God is the only hope of men. To pay their debt, they need men's blood, but flowing from a perfect head. So I must go. I know it's scary. Gabriel, take the news to Mary. The crowd around the throne made room. He left and hid inside a womb. A baby, just like all the others. The messengers sang what they knew, that this was hope. Then they returned to their watch and waited. Waited 30 years for something to happen, for the glory they'd seen to show itself in him. But all that anyone ever saw was a boy growing to be a man, treated no differently, except when smirking gossip of his birth went round the town and all the angels had to be held back from bursting on the earth and giving terrifying testimony of his greatness. Raised eyebrows would be singed by flame if heavenly creatures had their way, but the one who ruled them all held sway. So the man on earth began to speak of things that none had known, but all could hear if only they had ears. Groups gathered round to laugh and call him names, to try to take his life. He whom the angels had surrounded with their praise as God and maker of all things, he whose word was command in heaven, served everyone he could on earth. And the watchers realized that they had seen this heart before in the ever-giving Godhead. Now they saw it cross the divide. A spirit went to son to give him strength and father beamed his pride and boomed out shouts of affirmation. This is my son whom I love. Few there heard it. Instead, their hearts were turned against him. They made small plans of death and the watchers wondered if now was the time for dazzling vindication. But he let the plotters take him and the rulers beat him and he let them nail him. And something happened that had never happened. The father and the son stopped speaking. A last and desperate cry of other options for obedience had only nothing for reply. And heaven was silenced of their music, and angels hushed, unsure of what to say, but knowing not to sing. And then anger right and true, for all the wrong that man had done erupted from the throne and fell onto the head of Jesus hanging halfway on the cross. The screams of pain as judgment pierced him, anguish of unknown abandon, filthy had not touched, surrounding tidal waves of blood and death crashed down him. Centuries of lies and lust and things unjust, of hatred, hurt from words and weapons, all wrongs, bitter, foolish, careless, planned, on and on and on and on him until there was nothing left. The storm of God was gone, absorbed in him.
afflicted, seemingly diminished, he cried in triumph, It is finished. Then watchers saw three smiles in one as God declared the job was done and death received a man it couldn't hold, the prince of life, light of the world. He burst its bonds and walked out free, went to his friends announcing peace, peace to all those whose sins were great. The gardener of heaven had opened its gate. All that was wrong could be undone. The angels sang that hope had come. His crowd on earth craned next to look as from the earth his leave he took. The messengers said, he will return. But now it is the Spirit's turn to walk the earth and bring new birth. So go on, move. There's much to do. Swiftly those angels raced to heaven to see the welcome he was given. Countless ranks of creatures bowing, all of them now truly knowing that the Son had been the Saviour from millennia before the manger, that it always was the plan that God would send himself for man. Songs never to be ceased were sung and crowns before his feet were flung. Then the voice above all others, pleased to have his grace discovered, spoke. My son did all I asked and what he showed made heaven gasp. The glory ever there appeared afresh, not lessened but enhanced by flesh. The man with scars upon his hands is God and ruler of all lands, returning soon to claim his crown while every one of us bows down and cries out, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the praise of his name and the glory of God. Why don't, if you're able to stand, you stand and we'll sing. <laughs>